like you to open your Bible to Psalms 23. I'm sure you're familiar with this. I started last week on the title, The Lord is My Shepherd, with emphasis on my, personally. I have made a choice to take God at his word. The Bible states that Jesus is our shepherd. Amen? Then I want him to be my shepherd. And as I've already said last week and about a shepherd, we all know what a human shepherd is and how they corral the sheep and lead the sheep and, and find good water and good pasture and protect them from the varmints or from the elements. If they see it coming, they have a concern and a care for the sheep because they have an investment in the sheep. They want the sheep to do well, and it's their responsibility to see to it that they do. That's the human shepherd, and I think God takes that picture and displays it before us to say, you know, as there are human shepherds with human sheep, there is another picture of a heavenly shepherd with his people who are called the sheep of his pasture. And he is described in Hebrews 13, 20 as the great shepherd of the sheep. So Jesus is a shepherd, one who has sheep, hand-picked sheep, specially selected sheep. I think the Bible says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And what you are to me in a picture is like a shepherd and sheep. And I have things that I'm going to do and, and ways I'm going to lead you. Jesus even spoke of this about sheep without a shepherd. Remember that? He looked at the vast numbers of people just like we could, or if you can't, I, I think I could. Look at the vast professing, the numbers of professing Christians that are here and there who have had experiences, they've had moments with God in their life, and yet so many of them are like sheep without shepherds. And Jesus said, when there are sheep without shepherd, they're very vulnerable. There is a wolf, there is an enemy that comes to devour the sheep, to come in unawares or to disguise himself as a wolf in sheep's clothing. And they enter in amongst the sheep to take advantage of them, to devour them, to consume them. And sheep without a shepherd are vulnerable like that. They don't know that today. If you told a lot of people that are being devoured by error, by falsehood, or by foolishness, they would, they would vehemently disagree with you. They would think you're just being judgmental and rude and all of that. And yet a closer examination of people's lives show that they're, they're wandering, which is what sheep do without a shepherd. They really don't know where they're going. They're not dependent on the great shepherd to lead them. That's not a part of their prayer. They don't pray like that. They just figure that, you know, I'm all right. Everything will go well. They just wander around. And they don't know what they're eating and they don't know what's behind the bushes in their life. And they're just aimlessly wandering. The Bible refers to that a lot, that the word deceive means to cause to wonder. And sheep without shepherds do that. Yet God 
speaks of shepherds in the book of Jeremiah as they are the reason that God's people are being devoured because what they fed them wasn't what God gave them to feed them. The leaders, he said in Jeremiah 23, he said, they have made you vain. I can't even use you. I can't get your attention because you're not interested in what I have to say. You've ignored the word. You don't understand. And doom and gloom is confronting you and Nobody seems to care. The religious atmosphere today is filled with comfort and happiness. Make people comfortable, make people happy, warning people about wolves and warning them about the times you're in and the error of the hour is to be so negative and that people don't grow by negative things and therefore leave the negative stuff out of Christianity, and let's just talk about good, positive things. Sin talk depresses people. Let's leave sin out of the equation. Let's just talk about comfortable things, about how much God loves us and how wonderful God is and, and how he looked at the mass and how he and how he. Let's just enjoy that. And the people out there, they have no clue, even though they are edified by, by biblical words like that, they have no clue of how to deal with the enemy when he comes in like a flood. They have no idea that the enemy goes about like a roaring lion. They don't know how to identify him because it was considered to be too negative to identify that. Consequently, sheep today, Christian people, professing Christians who are sheep, are wandering. They're just wandering around. But here's what Jesus said. Remember we said this last week in John chapter 10. He said, my sheep know my voice. And my sheep follow me. They will not follow another, for they don't know their voice, but they know my voice. Which means that there is a relationship or a connection between those whom God brings to himself and reveals himself to them so that they are able to discern what is of God without hearing audible voice. They're able to discern what God has said over against what others are saying. And Jesus said, I lead them in, I lead them out. I will separate them from the world and they will follow me and they will make it. And in the end, I will say to them, well done, thou good and faithful people, and so on and so forth. Now, last time, in looking at Psalm 23 in the first verse, I just want to brush up on two things we said last week. Number one, Jesus said, if he's your shepherd, this will be one of the evidences of it. He said, you shall not lack. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack. Doesn't it say that? Then does it not also mean then that God cares about what you have and whether you have your needs met or not? Didn't he say, if you seek first the kingdom of God and the righteousness of your shepherd, that all these other things will be added to you? My shepherd says that. He's my shepherd. My shepherd says, if you will delight yourself in the Lord, that the shepherd will give to you the desires of your heart. And if you will believe your shepherd, he said, what things soever you desire. When you pray, believe that you've got them and your shepherd will give them to you. 
He's leading you in a good place. Still waters and, and green pastures is not a bad picture. You wouldn't look at serene and still waters and a comfortable valley of green grass and soft hillsides and ever, whatever poetic words you add to that. You wouldn't look at that and get depressed. I mean, that looks better than an alley with garbage cans in it. He leads you this way. And the more you begin to read what he says so that you can discern his voice, you begin to realize the provisions that God has made for you. For example, in Psalms 34, he said, there is no want. There is no want to them that fear him. Those that fear the Lord, respect, stand in awe of God, there is no want. And he said, he said, they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Now, I'm going to tell you something, and you and I both know this. There's a lot of Christians who talk about their needs all the time. In spite of the fact after 20, 30 years of being at a church somewhere, surely they've come across some of these promises at least once. And yet, it's just a psalm that is beautiful and everybody can quote it. But as far as the reality of it, evidencing itself in your life, doesn't seem to be there. And it, and it should be. There be no lack. Secondly, I said last week, is peace. My shepherd gives me peace. Freedom from mental agitation. He even said, I can cast all my agitated, stressful moments over on him. Didn't he say that? Because it says, he careth for me. Cast all your care on the Lord, 1 Peter 5, for he careth for you. Now, if he cares for me, he doesn't want me to walk around sad and dejected, negative and depressed. Today, I don't know what depresses people more than listening to the news and the political situations. Even though the Bible tells us that evil men, and I mean that just like I said, evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, not only in the church, but in society. Society will be evidenced with anger and meanness and lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, disobedient to parents without natural affection, heady, haughty, high-minded, proud, abusers, abusers, and so forth. People love to talk about how great they are. Just watch any kind of a professional sport and interview whoever the hero was after the game and watch them begin to laud themselves and how good they are and what I can do and how wonderful to society I must be. We're in a day that is unlike any other day. And it's a day for us to take note that these things are going on. And we don't have to be depressed. We don't have to be downtrodden. I don't have to listen to talk shows all day long and, and find myself filled with that junk in my mind all day. I don't have to listen to that. Oh, they're evil. I'm sure they will read Psalm 33 and 34. You want to know about evil? God tells us all about it. But peace, what do you say in Psalm 23 and verse 2? He makes me to lie down how? Green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Now, to me, that's peace. 
It doesn't mean there's not a problem. It doesn't mean we don't have trouble because he said in verse 4, Yea, thou walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. He also said that throughout all of this lifetime there's going to be trouble and difficulty. But he said it doesn't have to consume you. He said a thousand, the 91st Psalm about the, I think he's talking about a day we're in. It could reference it as the day we're in. He said a thousand shall fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand. The world's getting ready to collapse in a sense. It's the last days. Darkness is coming unlike any other time in history when darkness is coming, when men can no longer function and normally do what they used to do. Drugs are going to consume people. And like in read Revelation chapter 18 or 19 and 20, in the end about the effect of drugs on the world. We're there. We're, we're not coming there. We're there now. The earliest beginnings of, of the very last days, I think, are here. Now, somebody may listen to this tape 50 years from now and say, well, he, he didn't know what he was talking about. Well, it sure seemed like I do. I'll put it that way. It sure seems to me like I do. But if it didn't turn out to be, you know what? It, it leave it to somebody else to make that announcement. But I know this is a day which is unlike a lot of other days, and yet it's the same day that God is giving to his people peace. He shall cover thee, protect thee. He said, if God be for us in Romans 8, who could be against us? And he shall surround us with the protection of his angels. Did he not say, and concerning us, he would give charge to his angels to keep us in all of our ways? And yet that's meaningless to too many Christians. It's just not evidenced by joy and peace. Peace. That God's going to take care of us. He didn't bring us to this place to sit here all these years to disappoint us. Been people sitting in places like this that have heard what we've heard in other churches for years and have gone away critical and upset. Well, I have that kind of stuff. They preach all that and then people die and then that, they've divorced and all this and lose everything like somebody, I think, and maybe somebody in here tonight, maybe I'm talking to you. Somebody sent a note once and said, you know, when you talk about how the Lord has blessed you, it, it depresses me because I feel condemned if I'm not as blessed like you are. Well, bless your heart. Bless your heart. I pray that I can glorify God and say there was a time I was here and he has brought me to here. And the Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Whom he hath redeemed out of the mouth of the enemy. Now, he has redeemed me, and I don't, I don't make no apologies for that. There's just a negativity in a lot of people's lives that knows no peace. You've got a book in your lap tonight, if, if I'm talking to you particularly. You've got a Bible tonight. You've got a book. And that book spells out God's terms for peace. And the very first thing he says is, the Lord becomes your shepherd. It's him that I follow. It's him that I seek to know. It's his voice I want to discern in my heart when I hear all these voices. I want to follow him. I want to know that if death should come or some kind of a time of uncertainty, physical uncertainty comes, I want to know that the shadow of death in that great valley that men must walk through at some point, that you'll fear no evil because his rod and his staff, they comfort you. There's peace in symbols of his authority, that he's with you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. Why? Because he's your shepherd. He took upon himself 
the responsibility to care for folks like you and me. Isn't that wonderful that God is willing to take us by the hand and lead us through a turbulent life to the other side unscathed, victorious, above and not beneath, the head and not the tail, blessed as we went out, blessed as we come in, everything we put our hand to prospers. Don't you like that? Third thing, in Psalms 23... Verse 3, my shepherd does the work of restoration in me. He restoreth me. He restoreth my soul. This word, this verse 3 is a series of sermons here. And there's a great temptation to take too much time with this, but it's really important. Because when we realize, and hopefully all of you know this, and if you don't yet, if I keep saying it, you will. Everybody that God brings to him out of the darkness and the miry clay, everybody that hears that call, that tug from God, and they come to him unworthy as they are, when he brings you to him, he begins a work of restoring you to the way he originally intended for you to be. There is a way he wants you to be. There is a personality he wants you to have, the ideal. Only God can bring that out, and he does it with dirty, filthy people. Didn't he say to his disciples, now you are clean through the word that I have spoken? Then they were dirty before. Amen? He said about his church, his, his chosen sheep, he said, they shall be sanctified and set apart in Ephesians 5 by the washing of water by the word of God. And the supreme effort we make in a church is a proclaiming the word over and over and over again until people get it, until it begins to register in your heart. Because then it becomes a relationship of you finding out if you believe that, and proving him that he will do that. So he said, he restores my soul. Turn to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. When I think of restoration, I think of Brother Abel. Now, John would understand restoration because that's the name of his business. Restoration Workshop. Is that right, John? Now, if y'all have never been there, you ought to take one day off this week and just go down there and, and hang around there a while. <laughs> no. What does Restoration Workshop mean? Now, I know y'all don't know. I know it wouldn't occur to you what it is, but what, what it happens, because I've, I've proven it. I take a piece of furniture in there that's been abused. It's not the way it ought to be. It's, it's not very attractive. Nobody likes it. It doesn't, it is kind of an eyesore. And I take it to restoration workshop. And what does he do? With crafty hands, he restores it. And I come back and get it. And I go, wow, man, ooh, all those things that describe what's been restored. It never looked that good. Now it looks good. 
What if I said to you, in the beginning, the beauty of a piece of wood, I have respect for wood, pretty wood. In the beginning, God made wood for a number of reasons, to warm you at the fire, to make furniture out of. You would agree to that, wouldn't you? Something to sit on, something to eat off of, unless you think you ought to eat on the floor. And I think God intended for wood when it's finished right and made out of a nice piece of furniture and you do something with it like this is oak. He intended for it to look nice because it's something attractive about what God made. Would you agree? Now, when we abuse it, like the devil abused us, prior to being saved and how we got tarnished and scratched and dented and beat up and ugly, that God would walk in one day and said, I want that. You, you want this little old uh, table, footstool, pulp, whatever it is, you want that? Yeah, how much is it? Well, I'll buy it. So he pays, a rent, uh, excuse me, he pays the right amount of money to buy this piece of furniture and it's ugly. Now, y'all were ugly. You guys were ugly. We were ugly. We were ugly with sin, weren't we? Everything we'd ever done, everything we had ever done was wrong because there was not one righteous amongst us, not even one. We were like an abused piece of furniture because, well, like Jesus said, our father, the devil, that dark spirit that controlled our lives and warped our thinking had made us ugly. There was nothing about us that God desired. Isn't that right? And yet God, God picked up this piece of wood and he gave it to Jesus and said, I want this one restored. Is Jesus a restorer? Go to Malachi chapter 3. We got two verses now. We're working on two at one time. It's like a book with a real interesting book. It's got three plots. So we're, we're there. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 2. Now here's what it says about Jesus. He is, the Bible describes Jesus, our shepherd, as, says that he is like a refiner's fire. Well, what's the purpose of a refiner's fire? It's essentially to bring down the bad so that the good can come up. In other words, what he's got, what the refiner has, is not what he wants it to look like because it's original beauty, the intended beauty in the, in the beginning when we saw Adam in the garden was the kind of man God wants us to be. And all of that through the years got tarnished. And yet when God saves you, and you become the property of Jesus. He becomes like a refiner's fire. And in verse 3, it says this, He shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi. Now, Levi was a tribe in Israel. But it was a tribe of priests who were said to be God's chosen tribe who alone would minister to him on the behalf of the people. The Levites were the priestly tribe. They got no inheritance in the land. They didn't get any property. All they had was God. And God took better care of the Levites than any other tribe. 
they were blessed more than anybody when, when the people were doing right. But he said that he said he, he shall set as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. Now, does purify mean something in there needs to be cleaned out? It does. Now, think of it. Your shepherd loves you, picks you as a bad piece of furniture, a piece of ore, a junky-looking something, because he can see inside of you what he wants. And he took you when nobody else wanted you, and he brought you to himself, and he says, now, I'm going to do a work to change you. I'm going to change you. Because what you are is not what I want, but I'm going to make you the way I want you. You see, I'm a refiner. I'm one who changes ore into gold or silver. I get the impurities out of things so that what comes forth can be fashioned into something that is glorious and, and has worth. Now, you don't look like you have any worth, but there's worth in you. God wouldn't have picked you if there wasn't. So he begins doing his refiner's work inside of you. And he goes on to say in that verse 3 that he does this because he wants you to offer unto him an offering in righteousness. And the offering is yourself. Because what you were, he didn't want. He chose you, and then he shows you what he wants you to be. And then he says, this is the kind of person I want you to be. Clean, pure, refined, made right. Look at verse 4. Does verse 4 begin with the word that? God does a work in us to make us pure. So that what? So it said, then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord. You mean it's not prior to this? Are there churches full of people who bring their offerings to the Lord and their offerings aren't accepted? Why? Because the heart's not right. Read in Isaiah chapter 1. They brought their sheep and their goats on these festival days and high days. And he said, I've had all your offerings I want. All of your holy sacrifice, all of these, uh, no more. But what the Lord wants is not sacrifice. He wants your heart. Because that's what he's changing. And what he wants you to bring to him is not so much, look what I did, what, what do I get for this, as bringing yourself. And then whatever you bring to the Lord and, and you give from your heart out of a gracious appreciation and thankfulness to the Lord, he accepts that. That's pleasant to God. What if I told you today there's some gifts you don't bring to the Lord? The price of a prostitute doesn't belong in the church. What about the price of a lottery? What if you won $50 million and brought $5 million to the church? That's not good money. That's misery money. A lot of people went miserable trying to get that money because of lust and greed. That didn't belong in the church. Gambling money didn't belong in the church. What God wants is what you bring to him from your heart in appreciation, living on his terms. That's what he wants. I said, I didn't write all this. But he said, it happens beginning in verse 3, he's a refiner. He shall refine and he shall purify. Now, now go back to Ephesians 4. He will do all of those kind of things. And then in Ephesians 4, he said in verse 12, 
that he gave to the church, and you should be real familiar with this. God put in the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, which we call ministry gifts, ministries, special unctions that ordinary people get from God to do something special. They can only do the special thing when the unction is there to do it, but when it's there, it affects the sheep. And he says, and this is what will happen. Verse 13, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the perfecting of the saints. Is that purifying? Perfecting, he means he's going to put us together in right order. We're not in order. Not everybody's going to be in order because too many people don't want to hear. They've heard it and don't, they don't pay attention to it. But somebody will. Somebody's going to. And he said in verse 13, till we all come. Do you see the word till? That means a work is taking place. It'll come to this point and then it'll stop. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. This is it. This is what the refiner wants. This is the picture he shows us. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God has portrayed in Christ a picture of the kind of man that God wants us all to be. To be imitators of Christ is to live the way he lived because he and he alone, God was able to say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Nobody else in history ever had that said to him but him because he was the perfect one. And he's the one that, again, that God projects the measure of the stat. We're to grow up unto him and what? All things. He's our shepherd, the perfect man. What does verse 15 say? That we speak the truth and love may grow up how? Unto him in all things. All things referring to what? About him. This is Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, members of the world. Here is Jesus. And he steps out and says, this is what I want all of you to look like. This is how I want all of you to act. I want his characteristics displayed in you so that it's no longer you who live, but it's Christ, him who lives in you. He's the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. He's the one whose life exemplifies everything that God approves of. I'm going to call ministries together. Your job is not to promote yourself or a big building or a system, but to promote him. Tell people about him. And you can't unless you know him. Now you learn of him yourself. And then you tell the world about him. Most of them don't want to hear it. You're too narrow. You preach too long. But tell them anyway. Because the only thing, listen to me, the only thing that I found in the Bible that is acceptable to saints is the life that is like his. I say, well, that's a pretty tall order. It is a tall order. But so is the Holy Spirit who comes to guide us into all the truth, didn't he? The Holy Spirit comes to take the things that are of him, doesn't he? And reveal those things to us, doesn't he? 
Why then does the Holy Spirit concentrate on bringing to your attention and to your mind who he is and what he does? Because that's the image that God wants to brought, be brought forth in you. What did Paul write? He said, oh, I labor for you people. In Galatians, maybe five. He said, I labor over you people. It's a struggle. And I do this until Christ be formed in you. So that the judgment that God has to bring on all sin suddenly begins to disappear from your life because you begin living on his terms. You begin doing things his way. It's restoration. It's being brought, taking a piece of furniture that was not much until something that has prominence. It has, it has a sense of beauty about it. You begin to respect it. You don't want to hurt it anymore. You don't want any more dings, dents, and scratches. And you dust it, and you take care of it, and you put it in a a nice place because you're proud of it. This is what the Lord wants. This is what God does. Restoration. Turn to Psalm 51. This is what David described in Psalms 51. You're not that far from it. And look at verse 10. Now let me ask you something. Was David a bit dirty? Was David a bit tarnished? Was David a bit sinful? Then why would God fool with him? Because God, listen to me, you'll like, you'll like this, because God didn't choose David, a man vulnerable, able to fail, bring him out to once he failed to just reject him and throw him back. When God calls you, he stays with you. He does a work in your life. And whom he loves, he chastises. He does. He f deals with you as with sons. He corrects you. He doesn't correct the world. Look at all the people out there tonight that are, that are going to a bad place in a handbasket. Perishing. Laughing. Oh, I know I'm going to hell. I'll tell you one thing. I ain't going to heaven with all them hypocrites up there. You'll never have to worry about that. There'll be no hypocrites up there, and you won't be there either. They'll be going to the other place. They don't care about it. Why do you care if you do? If you do, why would it bother you that you're lagging behind being like your shepherd or that uh, things are just a little bit slow or you, well... Only because of the work of God. David said, create in me a clean heart. I don't have one. It wants to be, and sometimes I think it is, but <clears throat> I mess up pretty easy, he said. God didn't cast him out, did he? He could have. He could have. Nathan said, uh, you're not going to die. He could have died for what he did by law. Justice would have been served, but God is a God of mercy. And so he spared him. He said, create a clean heart, O God, within me and renew a what? A right spirit. Do we need that? Do you need that tonight? It comes from one source, 
only one place. And it only came in this case because the one who didn't have a clean heart or a right spirit acknowledged it. He confessed, I'm not clean. I do not have a clean heart and all of that. And he wasn't a happy camper. Look in verse 12. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Does your Bible say that? Then all the time with being a king and having it made and all the women and all the cattle on a thousand hills, anything he wanted, one thing he did not have was joy because he knew he wasn't right with God. There's no place you can go to get right with God. There's nobody you can call up and talk to. There's no course of action in some manual or some little booklet you can go through and give all the right answers and have a relationship to God. A relationship God comes only at his invitation to draw you to him. And if he doesn't draw you, you can't make it. You can't fabricate it. You can act like it for a lot of people do, but you don't have one. And when you're aware of it, and when you know you don't, like the Nathan the prophet said, you're the man. David said, God, cleanse me and clean me up and restore me and, and give, me, give me the joy again. I am a miserable, wretched, sinful, deceived man. And God did. Now, who in here has done worse than David? None of you. And if God would go that far to restore him and bring him back into graces, how much more you and me? I mean, he would do that for us too. Like Paul wrote in Romans 12, offer yourself every day a what? A living sacrifice. Remember that? Remember what verse 2 said? You've only heard a thousand times. And be not fashioned according to this world, but be transformed. This is restoration. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He, what, he doesn't make you. You've got to cooperate. Jesus is a shepherd, but you've got to make him your shepherd. It's a choice that you have to make. I take you as my shepherd. When people get married, I think there's one coming up here pretty soon. Some young man is going to look at some young woman and in so many words say, I take you, receive you, and accept you, desire you, and want you to be my wife. And she says, right on. And I want you to be my man. I want you to be my husband. And I want, and we want, and, but you got to want it. There's nobody in this room that has a walk with God that's always been just perfect and, and clean. And how many times have you wanted to quit? How many times has the devil tempted you to turn aside? Who, oh, who cares? What difference does it make? It? Or mess up really, really bad. And you know what? He didn't throw you out in the street when you did. He came back and got you, didn't he? There's been people that have backslid. There's been a few in life that have backslid and wandered off and did things that they're so ashamed of now, but it's offset by the goodness of God that brought them back because he's good. He is wonderful and he is good. That brings us to the fourth thing about this psalm. 
verse 6. Psalms 23, if you want to go back to it, verse 6. Surely, because Jesus is my shepherd, surely, surely goodness and mercy shall every day of my life follow me. Now, the source of goodness is God, and the source of mercy is God. Mercy is when you were pulled over for speeding. You were going way too fast, and the officer of the law was just and fair and right in giving you a ticket for the max. That's his job. That's his responsibility. That's what he's on the road to do is to catch people like you driving as crazy as you did and give you a ticket that you can't afford. You deserved it, and it's yours, and he's fair, and he's right. Mercy is when he says, I'm going to let you off the hook this time. That's what mercy does. Mercy sets aside the just recompense of the law. If God has every right because he's fair to level on us the judgment. And the reason he doesn't is because, well, through Jesus Christ, God shows us mercy. While you are guilty, I forgive you. That's got to be good. You've got to like that. We're all doomed, and yet we've all experienced mercy. The psalmist said the same word for mercy is loving kindness. He said, thy loving kindness is better than life because without it, I wouldn't have life. My life is due to mercy. All we like sheep had gone astray, and instead of you saying, down you go, you said, come before me, I forgive you. All that debt wiped it out. Now you can make him your shepherd and demonstrate your affection for him by the way you live and the choices you make by responding to his refining work. Because when you do and you're living this life, he said in that last verse, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. This is the shepherd's reward. Goodness and mercy all the days of your life. Would you turn to the Psalms? I want to amplify some of this with various writings in the Psalms. Look at Psalms 36. Psalms 36, verse 7 through 10. How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God. Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house. Didn't he say we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever? Okay. Goodness and mercy is leading us there. But anyway, he said, they shall be satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. For with thee is the fountain of life, and in thy light we see light. That's got to be good. Verse 10, oh, continue thy loving kindness unto them that know you. Ooh, that's a condition. 
Oh, continue thy loving, thy mercifulness unto them that know you and thy righteousness to the upright in heart. Is it possible that we can live continually experiencing goodness, mercy? That even though things are sour, even though those kind of days come up, he said they would. For us, they're days of testing. And what will you do with your emotions now that things look like the shepherd has hid his face from you? You know he has, but he said, I'll never leave you. So you know he's there, you just can't sense him. What would the shepherd do in a situation that you're in now? Any of you. What would Jesus do if he was experiencing tonight some of the things that trouble any of you here or out there in the, the electronic world? What would he do? How would he react to that person that you're thinking about or that situation that's coming up or came up or the physical problem or the mental problem or the money problem? How would he, uh, how would he react or what instruction would he give you? Would he tell you to run over him, hit him in the mouth, or would he tell you to turn the other cheek and love your enemies? What would he do? I mean, he is your shepherd. He is the one you follow. You don't follow him because it, it's convenient. You follow him whether it's convenient or not, in season or out of season. You follow Jesus. He said that uh, they shall be, verse 8, he said, they shall be abundantly satisfied. You got to like that. Abundantly satisfied. Is that condemning? Now, before anybody writes in any more notes, listen, read it. They shall be abundantly satisfied. If that condemns you, you're in the wrong building. Or you need to come up after this meeting tonight and say, I want to get right with God. Because your heavenly father, your shepherd, your chief shepherd tells you, he said, they shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of the house. God will make him to drink of the rivers of his pleasure. Those are figures of speech to show serenity and peace and abundance and supply, freedom from agitation, able to overcome. This is what your shepherd does for you. This is what happens when goodness and mercy follows you. Psalms 34, verse 8, he said, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Turn to Psalm 103. Psalms 103, and look at verse 4. Who redeems thy life from destruction. Who does? The Lord. Who is the Lord? He's my shepherd. What does he do? He redeems my life from destruction. You mean a thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but he'll make sure it doesn't come nigh you? That he who alone can give charge to his angels will give charge to them and they'll keep you in all of your ways? You mean to tell me that he cares about you that much and makes that much of a difference with you if you meet his terms? That's what he said. It's what he said. But he said that he redeems my life from destruction, crowns me with loving kindness and tender mercies. I suspect that those moments that some people have with God that are hard to define, those moments when you're trying real hard to cope and to deal with your life and situations in your life the way God wants you to, 
that some of those times you're just trying to be still and learn that God floods your heart and your mind with peace. That somehow you don't know how, but you know he's going to take care of this. You don't know how you're going to make it through this or how this is going to turn out or how this is ever, but you just know it will. And God can be very tender, I think. He said so. His mercies can be very tender to those who experience them. But he promised, if you walk in with him, goodness and mercy shall follow you. There's not a day they don't. There's no situation you walk into that they're not following you. There's no situation you find yourself into that they're not there with you. Goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. Look at verse 17. But the mercy of the Lord is from what to what? Everlasting to everlasting, but it specifies specifically for these, those who fear him. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness and to children's children. I would like to think it's passed on. Amen? And that our children will get it. And if they got it, their children will get it. And if their children got it, then their children will get it. It should be like that. It should be like that. We're taught this way. This is what the Lord has told us. Verse 18. This is for those who said to such as keep his covenant and those that remember his commandments to do them. In other words, to those that are faithful. This is the faith life. The message of faith is right here. You just read it. To those who are willing to take God at his word, live as though they're true, even though there's no evidence to that yet. To your heart, it shall be because God said it. This is the difference between the sheep and the goat and the wheats and the tares. Is who will take God at his word, who will do it his way, and who won't? who will make excuses and so forth. Shouldn't this be our testimony? Isn't this what we should all have to be known by? It's not like a man said once to somebody that I know well, he said, you're the luckiest guy I ever saw. Luck has nothing to do with this. When things go well with us, you know what? They're supposed to. When the Bible says it should be well with you and your children after you, it's supposed to be like that. That's not for just every now and then for somebody here, somebody. It's for whoever believes it. It'll be well with you. You'll prosper and be in health, even as what he's restoring prospers. And as that's working right, then all these other things will start coming to pass. Your life will be a testimony to the goodness and the mercy of God. He's led you in a good way. You're paying a price for it. You're cut off from the world. They don't want you around them, but they have to take note that you have been with the Lord and God makes a difference with you. You are blessed. You're usually the one they want to talk to when they have a question because they see it working in your life. That's our testimony. Goodness, the goodness of God, his mercy is ever, it should be our testimony. Paul wrote this, he said, but the Lord is faithful and shall establish you and keep you from evil. Shouldn't that be what we have? We are established, that is, we are set fast. 
We have turned resolutely to the Lord and therefore we are established. We're not likely to be moved off course. We won't fade away. This quality and wonderfully divine decision that we have made will last to the end of our life and if we've done it right into the next generation after you. Because God is faithful. And he said that he would do this. The smallest book in the New Testament, Jude, says in verse 24, Now unto him who is able. Now unto him, Jude 24, who is able to keep you from falling. Then we're not supposed to fall. Hello. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the throne of his glory with exceeding joy. Jude 24, God is able. When the Bible says God is able, does it mean that the one who is called my shepherd is the one who does this? Then you're telling me that God's personal interest in my life of all the many people that he has, his personal interest in my life is to lead me in such a way that he makes a difference with me from other people. That I am blessed when I go out. That I am blessed when I come in. That everything I put my hand to prospers. That he will keep me from evil. That no evil shall befall me. That no plague will come near my dwelling. Because he gives his angels charge over me and they keep me in all my ways. That he's the one who says with long life I'll satisfy you. He's our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack any good thing. He shall keep me. He shall protect me. He shall supply all of my need. He shall keep me from falling. He shall present me faultless, uh, without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, because the great refiner can do that. That the work he's doing in me is a work of preparation for a kingdom that's coming, so that I'll be a suitable citizen in that kingdom. Doing a work now. And my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And you read all these six verses about that, you see how wonderful it is. In closing, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18. My shepherd, in closing tonight, will do this. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will, what? Preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. What more? In this life, could I want more than that? There's only one who can do this. There's only one source of preservation. It's not willpower. It's not a big church. It's not a deliverance session. There's only one person who can preserve me, that is, keep me, sustain me, protect me, guide me through all the wars, the battles, the potholes, and the fires, and bring me faultless to the end of my life so that he says, well done. Only one can do it. That's Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. 
who has walked into your life and my life, only confirming it the last two weeks, just reminding us in the last couple of weeks, one of the most wonderful messages in the Bible is the shepherd. Because he says you're his sheep, in all the words, this is what he wants to do for you. Amen.